0: previously on Murder, Etc.
1: I said, how much did you steal over the years? And uh, we're talking the 1960s and 1970s, and money then was not money today. But he said, I think I probably stole around $8 million, all in all, and that's not a bad figure, even by today's standards. And they hid the car. And then they took another car, went to the bike, robbed the bike, brought it, then came back here,
2: and then sat in the woods while the cops were running all over the place trying to find them, looking for that car. Then when they leave, they drive the other car out, leave the other car hidden. I said, What'd you do sitting out there in the woods? He said, um, Well, actually, we were drinking Pat's Blue Ribbon beer and eating Viana sausages.
3: I had been used to being around guys like this. Even though these were southerners, the traits were the same. And I never talked down to them. I was treating them, you know, decently. And That's where a lot of police officers make a mistake. They come on hard at these guys, think they're going to break them. They're not going to break them.
1: Foster wrote what passed for the truth, and I think most of what he wrote was the truth. There was no reason for it not to be. But I think he also chose what he would write, and in some cases, he provided his interpretation. So I ended up with a combination, essentially, of truths and a fair amount of legend. And because Foster is no longer with us, we live with the legend.
0: When people are desperate, desperate for you to know something, and desperate because they can't find a way to say it aloud, they'll sometimes find a way to say it without saying it, like speaking in code. This is something I've grown used to since I started working on this story. Here's just a few seconds of a phone call I took back in the spring of
2: 2018. Honestly, the first letters, Charlie, Dave, his wife named Ethel. You got it? Charlie,
0: the Dave. I've disguised that caller's voice because who it is is not important. What matters is the caller needed me to know something, but was afraid to say it. Several months later, somebody else needed me to know something and posted a tip on a page I'd set up on Facebook. He told me about a man who said Charles Wakefield Jr. was innocent, that he had not killed Greenville County drug cop Frank Looper and his dad, Rufus, in 1975 the tipster referred to his source as Mr. A.
4: I was hesitant about giving his name, and he does have connections on the outside. I'm talking about on the criminal side, and the fact that at least one person he's connected with... Oh, man. That's hard. That's that's opening another door right there. I'm not sure I want to open.
0: As old as these stories are, Rarely a week passes without someone saying there are people who don't want this story told, and to be careful. While I never figured out what Charlie, Day, wife named Ethel meant, I'd put together a database of close to 300 names, people tied to the Looper murder case and organized crime in Greenville. I spent an entire night trying to figure out who Mr. A could be. I had last names like Adams, Alexander, Asbury, but none of them felt right in context, which is why, by sunup, I had decided the tipster was talking about a man named Arthur. Later, in the privacy of his home, that man told me I was right.
4: He's type of person you walk into the room and talk to and then you just don't feel good about it. So when you back out of the room, you don't walk, turn your back and walk out, you walk out backwards. There's no trust when it comes to somebody that's that slick.
0: Arthur was Arthur Edward Williamson, Jr. But around Greenville, where that man is among the county's most infamous, Arthur Edward Williamson, Jr. is known in another way.
1: You must be talking about Fast Eddie, (laughs) Fast Eddie Williamson.
0: In fact, people far and wide, all across the Southeast, know Fast Eddie, or at least have heard the stories. Dr. Max Corson wrote the book on Dawson gang leader, Foster Sellers.
1: Fast Eddie showed up early in Foster's narrative and continued for many years.
0: Fast Eddie rolled with Foster Sellers and showed up in the book because he was one of the most fearless, dangerous bank robbers of the 1970s.
1: He was a a bank robber and just about anything else you could find. Foster attributed a couple of murders to him. He wasn't able to prove it, and I didn't push him on it, but Fast Eddie was the sort of guy that if something unusual or undesirable would happen, then that happened.
0: Fast Eddie was an expert in the unusual and undesirable, and it made him one of Greenville County's best-known boogeymen. There are so many stories about Fast Eddie, some outlandish, some terrible, some terrifying. A man could start to wonder if Fast Eddie wasn't just the Kaiser Soze, to Greenville County's usual suspects. But he's real, very real, and the embodiment of the legend he's lived for more than 70 years. He is alive and well. I know that because I got an email from him just this morning. Some people, like royal babies, are born famous, but no one comes into the world infamous. They aren't born a bank robber. They come from somewhere from someone. Fast someone was Arthur Edward Williamson Sr., a man who had his own brand of infamy. Everyone knew him as Ott.
3: And I can remember going over to see his mother and she was such a nice religious person, very religious, exactly the opposite of Ott, you know. And the local the police officers, they couldn't stand him. I mean, it like, was like war over there with him.
0: According to retired FBI agent Tom Donahue, and just about everybody else you talked to, and a lengthy rap sheet confirming it, Ot Williamson was a drunk. A bad drunk. When Eddie was growing up, and well afterward.
3: Odd, he hated the police. He had a liquor store over there. Do you remember Tucker's soda shop yeah. over there? You know how you turned down to Tucker's? Well, he, he was right in the corner there. It was like a yellow brick building there. That's where Odd had his liquor store. And he could be a very mean individual.
0: As Eddie looked at his father and how his father looked at the world, Eddie developed a deep hatred for authority of any kind. And as Donahue tells it, there wasn't anyone around. To guide Eddie away from his hate.
3: Eddie was growing up. Both of them worked in the mill. And at that time, they had split shifts. Well, how the hell if your mothers work working eight hours in the daytime and the fathers eight hours a night, the kids are running the street free. And that was a common situation over there in the mill village.
0: And it wouldn't take too many years before his father, Ott, wasn't the best-known Williamson among the cops.
3: I knew his mother and father. His mother was a lovely woman. She lived over in West Greenville. His father was a um, I can't say. He was a real S.O.B.
0: And so, that left Eddie to himself to become Fast Eddie.
1: Yeah, I remember Eddie Williamson. I probably knew Eddie before he got so bad. We didn't buddy together, but I guess we were sort of friends for a while.
0: (laughs) If you grew up over in West Greenville in the 50s and 60s, chances are you knew Eddie at one point or another. Larry Smith remembers Eddie as a young teenager.
1: Eddie had love tattooed across these fingers here and hate on the other one. And then he got sweet on a little girl. Her daddy was a preacher. He said it was very painful to try to get them things off, the tattoos off off his knuckles like that.
0: Eddie says Smith remembered his hands right, love on the left, hate on the right. The girl was a preacher's daughter, but just a schoolmate, one who, in Eddie's words, visited me in the hospital when I got shot the first time. As a boy, Eddie could fight better than most men. But one day, in a brawl with boys from neighboring Pickens County, Eddie realized he'd brought a baseball bat to a gunfight. Eddie says his friend took a bullet in the head. Eddie swung a 36-inch bat at the shooter's head and missed, taking a bullet in his chest in the process. But Eddie says his backswing did the trick and knocked the shooter flat. Eddie's words here. He was unconscious for 90 days. Eddie ended up in the hospital where he met a kindly doctor who offered to cut the love and hate off his fingers. Eddie said, I had them put on at 12 and cut off at 16. If I'd waited until 16, I would never have had a tattoo. I hate them. For Eddie and most other people, wearing a tattoo is something like speaking in code. The ink is shorthand for something you want the world to know just by looking at you. Fast Eddie Williamson is thankful for the doctor who cut the love and hate off his fingers because Fast Eddie didn't have any need for code. He let his hands speak in full sentences, enough to fill books, trial transcripts, and more episodes of a podcast than I can imagine. Between the time Fast Eddie stopped wearing love and hate on his skin at age 16, and the time Lynn West met him nearly two decades later, Fast Eddie's reputation didn't just precede him. it walked into the room five minutes before him, and kicked every single person's ass on principle. You were hesitant to tell me Fast Eddie's name. In fact, you, you called him Mr. A at first. And I'm curious as to, to why um, that was your, your first inclination.
4: I guess that's why they call him Fast Eddie. He ran with a fast crowd. Eddie Williamson was somebody you, you didn't want to cross. I don't want to use the word violent because I don't I never knew it personally, but he did have a tendencies to be a violent individual.
0: That is Lynn West, 43 years after he met Fast Eddie the first time. This was
4: uh, shortly after they had made an arrest on Charles Wakefield.
0: West was a young man.
4: Matter of fact, that was probably the first quote unquote murderer I had talked to.
0: Not even a year into a job that put him within a 36 inch baseball bat swing of Greenville County's hardest criminals, inside the jail.
4: You had like a dormitory thing where you had double bunk beds and open area and all. And then you had single cells, which you had a small little walkway, probably about three feet from each individual cell. And they could lock the cells up and go down the walkway to get them out. Like you'd see on TV, the old uh, Attica or uh, Alcatraz. They'd go into the cell dorms, pull the lever down. They could individually lock somebody down.
0: West had just interviewed Charles Wakefield, Jr., Wakefield was charged with the murder of Lieutenant Frank Looper and Looper's father. West's job was to determine whether Wakefield needed a public defender. When he finished, West walked down that three-foot-wide path between the cells, where he met Mr. A for the first time.
4: Name is Eddie Williamson, otherwise known as Fast Eddie Williamson.
0: I've had West tell me this story a few times.
4: Fast Eddie stopped me and said, uh, said so the guy you just got talking to, Wakefield, said he didn't, he didn't kill Frank Looper, and just, he just looked at me and grinned, and
0: that's all he said. And every time, West remembers Fast Eddie's grin, not knowing what to make of it, not knowing why a white badass was making it a point to tell him the black guy down the cell block was innocent. West did the only thing he could think to do. He told someone else, a man named Robert Gillespie, the investigator for the Public Defender's Office. The Gillespie warned West to steer clear. He said, watch
4: out for him. I said, he's a con man. He said, you have to watch what you say, watch what you do.
0: West was in no position to protest. He was a young man and was smart enough to know there was a lot he didn't know. And I said, that's fine.
4: If I ain't got to communicate with him, I'm not going to communicate
0: with him. And so, West left it with Gillespie to do his job, investigating the case for the attorneys who would represent Charles Wakefield Jr. at trial.
4: Robert told me, he said, well, you know, he's, he's a con guy. He said, you got to be careful around people like that. He said, he's, he's, he's slick. And he said, I'll t- but I'll, I'll try to talk to him.
0: West spoke highly of Gillespie when I interviewed him. And today, West isn't sure if Gillespie ever talked to Fastetti and asked why he thought Wakefield didn't kill the Loopers. Gillespie's trajectory through the 1970s, the Greenville County law enforcement system, and this story is one of the more curious you'll find. At the time of Charles Wakefield's arrest and trial, Gillespie was an investigator for the public defender, a job he held for six years. Before that, and after that, he was a cop, first a highway patrolman, and then a high-ranking sheriff's office deputy, who just like Frank Looper, ran the county narcotics department. That was not the only thing Gillespie had in common with Looper. You might remember, minutes before someone shot Frank Looper, Looper had been on the phone with the woman he intended to marry. A nurse named Rita. Rita Gillespie. Robert Gillespie's ex-wife.
4: That was my only communication with Fast Eddie at that one particular time. Now, I've talked to him after 75 several other times.
0: In the many years I'd been reading about him, Fast Eddie was a ghost, a character in a story I was reading. I'd worked Eddie up to be a sort of Anton Chigurh, and a Dixie Mafia reboot of No Country for Old Men. I'd eventually learn Fast Daddy was just as dangerous as Cormac McCarthy's fictional evil, and maybe a hell of a lot more cunning. Here's what Lynn West learned from first-hand experience.
4: First of all, he's not stupid, he's articulate, number one. Always thinking ahead of time. He knows what he's going to ask, he knows what he's, he should try to get from you, but he knows what he can get from you if he asks the right questions. If he's looking for information, he's kind of almost like a detective in one sense. Of the word he can he knows the thing to ask to get from you. If he wants a favor from you, he'll work it, but he'll work it in a way in which you don't know you're giving him a favor. That's the con part into it with him. But uh, now he's a smart guy. Number one, I don't doubt that.
0: Stories like that are how legends like Fast Eddie's outlast the men who lived them. Legends being little more than shorthand or code. For how we've chosen to remember our past. Greenville, South Carolina's legends are complicated. There's Shoeless Joe Jackson, the baseball player who rose from the Southern Mill Village to play in Major League Baseball, only to leave in disgrace accused of fixing the World Series. There's Evangelist Bob Jones, whose university is home to one of the most important collections of religious art, but only dropped its interracial dating ban in the year 2000. There's George Hencaffy, one of America's best cycling road racers who isn't even from South Carolina. But he set up his home base here and then eventually admitted to his role in cycling's biggest performance-enhancing drug scandal. Eddie's legend isn't so much different in that the legend itself changes depending on who is telling it. Take, for instance, Max Corson, the man who wrote the book on Fast Eddie's old bank robbing pal, Foster Sellers.
1: Fast Eddie's job was to encounter the one-night policeman and hold the policeman at gunpoint until Foster and his friends had broken into the bank and gotten the money.
0: Corson's book and Foster Sellers' recollections are not particularly kind to the legend of Fast Eddie. There's good reason for that, which you'll hear about at some point. But for now, you only need to know that after many years of friendship, one of Sellers' favorite stories about Fast Eddie was the night he bungled a small-town bank job in Georgia.
1: Fast Eddie started running, and he had on slippery shoes, and he slipped down on the sidewalk, and the um, police officer shot at him and hit him in the butt. As a result, Fast Eddie's girlfriend later on had to patch him up. But Fast Eddie was an, an unknown quantity.
0: Dr. Corson readily admits the book he wrote with Sellers likely contains a fair amount of legend, and Sellers' story sort of made fast eddie out to be a buffoon donahue the retired fbi agent says nothing could be further from the truth
3: he's the kind of guy he's very intelligent contrary to what that book said
0: he's a guy who was like could have been done something with his life if he had been brought up differently if you take all of that together it may be hard to put a finger on how this one man could scare a community of people how one man could be so legendary among cops and criminals and all the shady spots in between. It's because of this. Fast Eddie killed at least one man. At least. Fast Eddie could claim responsibility for the Dawson gang's wild success and its end. And Fast Eddie rubbed shoulders with just about every damned person you've heard about so far in the first 10 episodes of Murder Etc. Bub Skelton, Luke Cannon, Country Small, Frank Walker, Billy Wilkins, Johnny Mac Brown, even Frank Looper, and I've been chatting with Eddie for the past six months. Before we get to all of that, we first have to deal with how Fast Eddie became Fast Eddie. Let's go back to Tom Donahue.
3: I knew about the the, uh, shooting at at the pool hall where
0: Eddie killed that guy. Fast Eddie has never denied he shot Thomas Pearson in the face in August of 1971. It happened in the Greenville County community of Greer. At a bar called Club 29, Eddie always said it was self-defense, but he went on the lam anyway, running for five months before getting spotted by deputies, leading a car chase into a nearby county, ditching his car, and hiding in the woods for five hours.
3: Was charged with manslaughter, I think, in that and got I know three or four years. While well, the people that testified for Eddie said it was a fight and that uh, the guy tried to hit him with a pool
0: cue or something. Eddie Williamson today maintains he acted in self-defense that night. Writing, I regret killing Tommy Pearson at Club 29, not for him, but for his father, mother, wife, children. However, it is the only crime in my life that I should have been found not guilty. Eddie wrote that just a couple of days before I wrote this episode, acknowledging the short sentence he received without fully explaining it. In South Carolina, a judge can hand down a sentence of up to 30 years for manslaughter.
2: He had a prior criminal record of voluntary manslaughter that was before my time. He was only sentenced to three years for voluntary manslaughter, which is raises some eyebrows.
0: Judge Julius Baba Ness, who would become Chief Justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court, actually sentenced Eddie Williamson to four years. Eddie was back on the street in 18 months. In between January of 1972, when deputies arrested Williamson for the Club 29 shooting, And when Judge Ness sentenced him in December of that year, Georgia cops arrested Williamson with fellow bank robber Larry Hacker. The cops said they found the men with $10,000, four pistols, a sawed-off shotgun, a bunch of pills, and for Williamson, a warrant from Chicago for murder.
3: And then I knew about him doing the job for Cotton McGuire in Chicago.
0: FBI agent Tom Donahue said the allegations were serious.
3: He was doing a job for McGuire and he went into a, a diner up there in Chicago.
0: Like his short sentence from manslaughter, Eddie Williamson won't talk about his time in Chicago, saying he'll tell it all in a book he's writing, one he calls defiant until death. But Tom Donahue says he knows more of the story. This is how Donahue says Williamson made it out of Chicago and back down to the friendlier confines of Judge Ness's chambers.
3: And he's about 5'8, has bad skin. He had blossomed up to somewhere around 240. He was like a tub, and he had full hair, beard, and everything. He got away from the scene. By his estimate, he lost something like 70 pounds, cut all the hair off, went into court. They had absolutely no evidence except eyewitness identification. None of the witnesses could identify him, so they had to cut him loose. Now, that's the story as I understand it. So he was never convicted of that
0: and whatever time he wasn't behind bars in the early 70s williamson was robbing banks for huge amounts of money once out of prison on the manslaughter charge he picked the bank robbery game right back up in january and february of 1975 williamson and his partners robbed two banks and stole more than one hundred thousand dollars after those robberies eddie hooked up with a couple of guys you've already come to know he called jackie Delk for a ride and he took his cash to Luke Cannon for safekeeping. By the time Lynn West heard the whole story, it was already legendary.
4: They would have automatic weapons. They would shoot up in the air. Everybody would sit down, or they going to die, lay on the floor or die. They would do it real quick, like too. They would burst in, grab what cash they could grab, and then they would leave. So anybody that's bold enough to go in there firing a gun, or, or better yet, an automatic weapon, knew what they were doing.
0: Convicted of manslaughter, accused of murder, caught with a cache of guns, money, and drugs, robbing banks with wild abandon, getting away with small fortunes, and what seemed like a slap on the wrist. You don't need any kind of code to understand that is how Fast Eddie Williamson became a criminal legend. What it doesn't explain was how in the hell he ended up a few cell doors down from Charles Wakefield in late 1975. You'll hear the full story one day, but for now.
3: There were certain
0: guys that many uh, had no respect for. Jackie Delick was one of them. You should know, like Al Capone going down for tax evasion, sometimes the most mundane crimes are the ones that get you. This is the Chainlink Fence Caper. On parole for manslaughter, Manny Williamson was on thin ice, but he was running around like he could walk on water. Problem was, the guys he ran with were quick to sink. You remember Frank Walker, the cop-turned-contract killer? Leonard Brown said Walker just couldn't shut up when riding around with a cop named Billy Ledbetter, one that Walker thought was dirty.
2: Billy gets Walker riding around with him one night. Billy rides around with him, and they talk about every damn thing in the world, and he tells him about how much he loves old Eddie, Eddie Williamson, tells him about going to help him steal a fence. (laughs) for his house. That's what the way he was
0: in jail with A chain-link fence to go around Eddie's place. A few hundred dollars worth. Billy Wilkins said he had a different source of his own.
2: He said that he and Fast Eddie Williamson went to the Augusta Road Fence Company one night out here off of old Augusta Road and backed the truck through the perimeter fence and stole a bunch of fencing material.
0: The case didn't seem great at first. A small-time job with crooks as witnesses. But prosecutor Billy Wilkins went for it anyway.
2: I indicted Eddie Williamson for that based on that testimony. And and true enough, they had been a theft. And we were able to get the records and the fence company had reported it. And so there was corroboration there beginning to develop.
0: Eddie Williamson wasn't worried. He felt certain a local business owner was gonna vouch for him and say that on the day of the chain link fence job, Eddie was working for him. That business owner? did not come through.
2: We went to trial and I remember Fast Eddie had a had several lawyers. One of them was Rex Carter, former Speaker of the House. And we went to trial and I got a few lucky breaks because it's an old case. But I was able to corroborate some things and Fast Eddie took a stand and lied and I caught him in a couple of lies and that, that sunk him.
0: Recalling that moment this week, Fast Eddie Williamson said of the business owner, I did everything I told him I would, but at the first opportunity he sold me out. People like that lead miserable lives. Bet on it. Williamson also wrote somewhat ominously about that business owner. He turned out to be a lucky man, and he does not know how lucky. Fast Eddie admits Billy Wilkins caught him in a lie and says he still respects Wilkins as honest, forthright, and trustworthy. Williamson considers Wilkins a friend. Wilkins, meanwhile, said when it came time for sentencing, Williamson didn't draw a friendly judge. Instead of $350 worth of chain link fence, Eddie got real time behind bars.
2: But anyway, the judge who was up here, a visiting judge, and he, he kind of got the drift of what was going on, and he sentenced Eddie to 10 years.
0: In that moment, Billy Wilkins sensed an opportunity. Right there in his courtroom was one of the most hardened badasses around. A man who had connections to dozens of other criminals with their hands in guns, drugs, and stolen money. With Williamson facing 10 years, Wilkins made his play.
2: In the courtroom, I leaned over to him after he got his 10 years, and I just whispered Eddie you talk, let me know. And he said,
0: F you. You heard him right. Fast Eddie said F you to Billy Wilkins. To anyone in the gallery, Fast Eddie looked like one of those tough guys Tom Donahue talked about.
3: that's where a lot of police officers make a mistake. They come on hard at these guys, think they're gonna break them. They're not gonna break them.
0: Fast Eddie is a nickname that has been around for a while. A short code to describe legends, good and bad. Wikipedia can be a pretty good resource compared to what most folks living today had when they were growing up. The website sits at your fingertips and requires a lot less heavy lifting than Encyclopedia Britannica. But if you try to search Wikipedia to find out who might have been the first Fast Eddie, the best it can do is offer Eddie Rickenbacker, the World War I flying ace born in 1890. After that came many others. Fast Eddie Clark, the guitarist for Motorhead. Fast Eddie Smith, the major league pitcher who in 1941 gave up the first hit in Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak. Fast Eddie Parker, the pool player believed to be the inspiration for Fast Eddie Felsen. Paul Newman's character in The Hustler. There are many others, a charity runner, a basketball player, a pedophile, a house music producer. I spent more time than I probably should have trying to figure out where the nickname originated. I ended up in an 1896 newspaper, the Sioux City Times out of Iowa, where an enterprising reporter had gone inside a jail and copied down all of the prisoners' names scrawled on the wall. Right in between Harlem Dutch and Blinky Kid was Fast Eddie a prisoner of the 1890s. Maybe not the first Fast Eddie, but the oldest I could find. And then there's Fast Eddie Williamson, a legendary bad man who after more than six months of off-the-record conversations has agreed to go on the record with me about this story and many others that surround his life. That interview wasn't as easy as others to set up because Eddie Williamson is in prison but it's how I learned he didn't earn the nickname because he could drive a getaway car faster than anyone, or because he was a pool hustler. Someday I'll tell you the story of an old bar owner named Wolf, one who died in a gun battle right in the middle of Greenville's Washington Avenue. Wolf is the one who gave Eddie his nickname, because Eddie could cheat at dice and cards better than almost anybody. By the time Wolf ended up on the wrong end of a shotgun, Eddie was in prison. His legend, carved into Greenville streets like the South's bloodiest hieroglyphics.
4: Eddie's notorious. That was the key word. I, I was told that from the very jump start. He was notorious. He had connections with people on the outside. He ran in rough crowds. He was a person that you did not want to be on his bad side. Whether your life was in danger or not, I couldn't say, but I would not want to find that out.
0: Wes may have worried about what would happen if he crossed past Eddie. He wouldn't be alone. Lots of people have felt the same way. Studying Eddie and the complicated, dangerous, terrifying men he called friends. That study is a practice of reckless discipline. At first, it's like watching something amazing on television. A 60-foot wave off the coast of Hawaii or an F5 tornado cutting through a 40-acre field in southeast Kansas. It seems impossible something like that, something so simultaneously destructive and fascinating, exists in our world. Eventually, the fascination turns into something more compelling. Watching it on TV just won't suffice. Satisfaction, in the most literal sense of the word, exists only in seeing it and experiencing it in person. This is the kind of fascination that breeds big wave surfers and storm chasers. People who live for the opportunity to stare a deadly force of nature in the face, to study it, to ride it, to defy it. That is where the reckless discipline comes in. It's what someone I know calls a healthy fear, like a healthy fear of water or wild animals or fire or whatever it is that simply doesn't care whether you live or die. In other words, it's a matter of respect. Respect for that natural force, and the fact its ability to kill you is just as powerful as its ability to amaze you. Fast Eddie is just that kind of force—a force that understood his power, his weaknesses, and himself better than anyone else ever would.
2: Yes, yeah, Eddie, I understand how you robbed the second bank, but how you robbed the first one? He said, "I tell you what you do." You get psyched up so you don't mind dying and you don't mind killing. When you reach that point, nothing can stop you.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Murder, Etc. I know from watching our Facebook page and our download numbers, there's a lot of you who joined just in the past couple of weeks. So thanks. I do need to say a few things about how things are working with Fast Eddie Williamson. Next week, I'll tell you a little bit more about how it all got started. But for now, after a long period of getting to know each other, trading stories about gambling and sports, Eddie invited me to visit him in prison where he'd agreed to do an on-the-record interview. I spent about a month working through the official channels only to have the warden unexpectedly deny the interview, citing, in the warden's words, concerns for the institution's security and good order of the institution. I wondered if that security concern was about me or about Eddie. I wrote the warden and asked, but he didn't respond. I appealed the decision formally, but that appeal was immediately denied. So Fast Eddie is answering my questions via email on the condition that I don't say publicly what institution he's in. I've agreed to do that. What Fast Eddie Williamson knows, what he's already talked about on the record and what he is still working to say, I realized pretty quickly it was way too much to fit in one episode, even two episodes. So you'll hear a lot more about what he's said and what he will say in the coming months. In the meantime, at some point very soon, hopefully within a couple of days, you'll be able to read some of the things that he's written to me. You'll find it all on our website, murderetcpodcast.com. That's murderetcpodcast.com. One last note, just a heads up here. Next week, I'll be slipping a very small amount of advertising into Murder, Etc. It will be short and barely interrupt the show at all. You may or may not know, putting together a show like Murder, Etc. is both time-consuming and costly. A small amount of advertising will defray a little bit of the cost of putting this show together for you. Also, with that in mind, keep listening in the coming weeks for some opportunities we'll be offering our most dedicated listeners who want to get just a little bit more involved with Murder, Etc. Until then, here's what's coming up next time on Murder, Etc. You might remember that time I talked with Frank Looper's family about the warning shots just before his murder. There was a point not too long before the murders happened that somebody drove by Frank's house at night and shot the front of the house. Uh And Frank went out and did some investigating about that later, but never discovered who did it. Frank Looper might not have known, but Fast Eddie says he does. Fast Eddie names names on the next Murder, etc.